time with Steve Hostetter. And Steve has been kind of come out of our Sugar Grove campus, and he and his wife Brenda are here today. They've been married 35 years, he told me today. And I believe that's three children, nine grandchildren, one on the way. Uh, Steve serves as the president of Oak Hills Christian College in Bemidji, Minnesota. Before that, he was at Alaska Bible College. He has a Ph.D. from uh, Trinity International University, and uh, he actually used to be the youth pastor at VBC a long time ago, 1980 uh, to 1983. And uh, we wanted to give him a warm welcome because he has served quite some time out in the field. He's going to tell you a little bit about his ministry as he shares the word of the Lord with us. So I want you to give him a very warm VBC welcome today as he shares the word with us. Thank you, Travis. God bless. God bless you. Good morning. First thing you need to know is that I have a cold and I've been fighting off a cold. So I'm not sure what's going to happen first, whether I'm going to run out of voice or run out of time. All right, I know some of you are already praying that I run out of voice. I can tell it. I can hear those. Yeah. And uh, so I have my cough drops, and thank you for the water, Steve, for having that for me. So I appreciate that. One, one quick thing. Forgot. Yes. We needed to dismiss our children for children's worship. So children are now dismissed for children's worship. Sorry to steal your thunder. Not a problem. That's fine. I'm just watching to make sure, you know, everybody that's going is really children. <laughs> It is good to be here. Yes, we first were supported by Village Bible Church in uh, 1988, so it's been more than 25 years since we've gone to the mission field and have been supported in, of course, 1980s when I was youth pastor at Village Bible Church in Sugar Grove with that old metal building that we used to have out there, that yellowish, brownish colored looking building uh, many years ago. Now we, first we serve with Send International for 18 years in Alaska at Alaska Bible College where I was faculty and then president. And the last eight and a half years, we've been in Bemidji, Minnesota. It's the land of the snows in. Snow's still this deep, and the lakes are still frozen. You can still drive your car out on the lake if you'd like. Um, anyhow, uh, we're hoping that most of that's gone until we get back. And so we started with Oak Hills Fellowship and Christian College. We use the word Christian College pretty much to describe who we are now, because if we tell people we work at Oak Hills Fellowship, they think Lord of the Rings. And uh, so we, we tried to, so we didn't have to explain that all the time and what that was. <clears throat> but Oak Hills Fellowship and Christian College obviously is a Christian college. That started in 1946. Oak Hills started as a pioneer missionary work in the 1920s. The college started in 1946. So we have a small Bible college, 145 students there at Oak Hills, and it's an accredited school that offers degrees in ministry as well as some other things at Oak Hills. We also have other ministries, though, and those include a summer camp. So we have Camp Oak Hills, and that summer camp has, a, well, last summer, over 500 campers at our summer camp at Camp Oak Hills. All the staff at Camp Oak Hills are missionary staff that raise support. All the staff at the college are paid by the college. We also have a center for Indian ministries. We have three Indian reservations right around us, Leech Lake, White Earth, and Red Lake reservations. And we have a ministry on those reservations, and we have a discipleship and ministry training school for Native Americans. All the staff that serve uh, with CIM, our Center for Indian Ministries, are missionaries that raise support as well. And then we kind of have a one-person department, <laughs> a church and ministry relations department. And so we have an individual 
who also raises support, who serves the churches in our region. Oak Hills first started out as camp and church planting and KYB, Know Your Bible Clubs with Kids, and over the years it changed and morphed into what we have today. So my particular, I tell people maybe I'm schizophrenic or I'm a bipolar missionary or something because I'm a half a missionary and half not. I don't know which half, top half, bottom half, I'm not sure which way it's split, but um, I'm president of Oak Hills Christian College, and they pay me a salary for that part of my job. But I also oversee the summer camp and the director of the camp and, the, and oversee the Center for Indian Ministries and oversee the church and ministries as well. Those are all missionaries that raise support. So that part of my salary that's allocated to that part of my job is the missionary part and the part where I have to raise support to cover that portion of my salary. That may be confusing to you and may not be really clear, but you can ask me later or just chalk it up to I didn't do a good job explaining. We have a display back there, uh, Oak Hills, and so it has some information about the college and the campus and the different ministries that we have. You certainly look at that. We'll be back there afterwards if you want to chat with us at all and uh, or ask any questions about the ministry that we're doing there. Um, so years ago, when we first went to Alaska, in the early years that we were there, my wife and I decided that we were going to go on a fishing trip with another couple. Uh, they, they, were, they were students at Alaska Bible College, and so we were going to go salmon fishing down the Gulcana River. And so we got all of our gear together. We needed a raft, so we got, borrowed a raft, and we got our oars, and we got our gear, fishing gear, looked on the map. Here's where we'll put in the river. We'll float down, and we'll get out of the river at this spot. And uh, <clears throat> so we pulled that all together. We went up, got babysitters for our kids, and uh, we put in at the river, and we started down the river. And as you go down the river, you, generally we would stop where there were, like, deep holes in the river. And these are places to stop and to fish for salmon. As they're swimming upstream, they rest in these deep pools. And so we come to the first one, and we fish a little and nothing. We get nothing. So we put back in and uh, go a little bit more and try another little hole, and we get nothing. After a while, we realize that we're going a lot slower, and this is going to take a lot longer than we realize. So we did less fishing and more just floating down the river to get to the other spot. We told our sitters we'd be gone four hours. In the end, we were gone eight hours, so they probably were wondering, probably ready to call out the rescue squad or something for us. Anyhow, we're doing less fishing, and we're just floating down the river trying to get there, and we have these oars, and sometimes the river's fairly wide, and it's shallow, and you get stuck on rocks, and you've got to push yourself off, and sometimes it's deep and, and narrower and faster, and then you're, you're okay. One time, when we were pushing off the rocks, one of the oars we were using busted in half. These were wooden oars, and uh, so now we fortunately... We were able to salvage the broken, the bottom half of the oar, you know, that had the paddle on. So we're good. We can at least still maneuver our raft with one full oar and one, a third of an oar, I think is about what it was. So we're going down the river with this, and we're really not fishing much, and we're still going. And we come to a spot where there's this deep pool, and the water kind of floats backwards into that pool. And there's a guy fishing there, and we didn't want to disturb him. So we're paddling really hard not to get caught in that current that takes us back into the pool. And that half or one-third of a paddle slips out of whoever was wielding its hands and drifted away. And now it's gone. So now we're down to one paddle, one oar. Have you ever tried to steal a raft with one oar? That's really hard. Anyhow, we found a stout stick along the way, so that we used that to kind of help guide and push. 
So we're going down the river again, and we're not getting any fishing done, and time's already passed, and we know we've got to be back. So we're getting close to the end, and we know we've got to get out. <coughs> and when we get, where we get out is a very popular fishing hole, and you can drive to that spot. So it's usually lined, both sides of the banks are lined with people who are fishing. And we're coming down, and we know that we have to get to the shore at the top end of this spot because <coughs> the water moves really fast, and the current swings over against the bank, and then it swings away again. So we're maneuvering ourselves, and we're working really hard, and we did great. We come right up against the shore. <coughs> the guy in the back grabs the bushes so we don't float away, and he's holding the oar, and he jumps out, and when he jumps out, he pushes the raft, and we lose our grip. And now we're floating down the middle of the river, the three of us who are left in the raft with nothing, no stick, no oar, no nothing. Sometimes we go through life that way. We go through life just getting there, just getting to the end. And we get so busy living life and so busy being occupied with what's happening in our lives that we forget why we're here. And we're spending all of our time just getting there. And when we get to the end, we kind of look foolish and we finish poorly. I mean, we look foolish and we finish poorly when we got to the end. And sometimes that happens in life because we forget why we're here, what our purpose is for being here, and the legacy that we are to leave on this earth. Joshua 4 helps us, is somewhat instructive on this. So if you have your Bible, if you bring it, I would encourage you to open it and use it. We're going to be in, in it a lot this morning uh, during the time that we have. And uh, look, messing around in a few different passages. Uh, you got an outline in there with lots of blanks. So if you got a pen, we're going to go pretty quickly on some of this stuff early on. <coughs> so anyhow, Joshua... <coughs> Chapter 4 is the crossing of the Jordan, and when they finish the end of their wanderings. This is a watershed event in, and that's maybe pun intended, right? Because they're talking about water. This is a watershed event in the life of Israel. This is a key marker in Israel's history. They were in slavery, 400 years in slavery in the land of Egypt. They left the land of Egypt. God parted the waters at the Red Sea. That begins their 40-plus years of wandering in the wilderness. And then here we are at the end of their wilderness wanderings, and we need to have the water be parted again, uh, the Jordan River. So it's a really key marker in the history of Israel. So they're at the end of their wilderness wanderings. Moses has died. Joshua is the new leader. They're getting ready to cross into the Promised Land and to cross the Jordan and to do battle. So their wanderings are bookended by crossing water events, the Red Sea first, and then at the end, uh, the Jordan River crossing. So let's look at the background a little bit and get the context. So <clears throat> Joshua chapter 1, we have the commission of Joshua as leader. This is the commission of Joshua as leader. Verse, starting in verse 5, no one, Joshua 1, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. It says, be strong and courageous again and again and again, and it happens several times throughout this particular passage. So, this is the commission to Joshua. Now the leader, he's being commissioned to lead the people. Chapter 2 is the confirmation of God's leading. Verses 8 through 11, remember Rahab, she hid the spot. They sent two guys on a scouting trip into the land of Canaan, particularly to, particularly to Jericho. 
Rahab hides the two spies in this chapter. And she says, beginning in verse 8, she said, verse 9, I know the Lord has given you this land, and a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, and so on. Verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is, is God in heaven and above on the earth below. Rahab recognizes, tells them that this, is, this affirms for them that this is God's plan for them. We get to the end of that chapter. Two men go back. Then they went out of the hills, forded the river, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. And this was their conclusion. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of you. So you got the spies. They go into the land. They check it out. They check out Jericho. They see what's going on. They come back. They give their report. And in summary, they say, the whole land is melting in fear because of you. Oh, this is confirmation of God's calling for them. This is, yeah, we've got strong confirmation that we're to go ahead. We're to move forward and cross into the promised land. Now, Joshua 13, 1 to 3, is the preparation for the crossing of the Jordan. Verse 5 in particular, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrating themselves meant bathing, washing one's clothes, and sexual abstinence. God says, consecrate yourselves. You're going to, God's going to do amazing things for you the next day. You get down to verse 12, and verse 12 is kind of a... Little insertion in there doesn't really fit the context, doesn't really have any meaning at this point. But verse 12, they talk about the ark and following the ark, and then verse 12. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And then it goes on, talks about the priests who carry the ark. So this little verse is inserted in there. We really don't know why Joshua is to choose 12 at this point, but he's just supposed to pick 12, one from every tribe. Verses 14 to 18 of Joshua 3 is the action of crossing, the action of crossing the Jordan itself. So now they move across. Verse 14, when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Verse 4, um, verse 13 of Joshua 3. Oh, let's see here, verse 16 at the end. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. So now they actually, priests step in the water. And the water stops flowing. This is an act of faith. The ark was representative of God's presence. It was a symbol of God's presence with the people. They had to maintain some distance from the ark. The priests step in the river. It stops flowing. The people cross the river. Water piled up near a town of Adam about 20 miles north. So it gave a lot of room for a million plus people to cross the Jordan River. <clears throat> then Joshua chapter 4 is the commemoration of the event, the completion of the crossing, and the commemoration of the event of crossing. Remember, this is a key event in Israel's history. So let's look at Joshua 4 and break this down. See, I'm going fast, so you've got to write quickly, all right? <clears throat> Verses 1 to 3 is the instruction from the Lord to Joshua. Take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan. So God instructs Joshua, take up. 12 stones. Why the middle of the Jordan? Why didn't they wait till they camped on the other side and find 12 rocks? They camped right along the Jordan at Gilcal. Why didn't they just wait till they were camped and then find 12 rocks and make 
and do whatever they were going to do with them. Why the middle of the Jordan? What's the difference between river rocks and land rocks? Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> river rocks are smooth, right? They've been smoothed over by the river, and land rocks are usually more rugged and sh with sharp edges. So why the middle of the river? To prove that Israel crossed the river. Evidence. Here's clear evidence that Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Verses 4 through 7 is the same. We get the instruction again, take up 12 stones. And this instruction is from Joshua now to the 12. Now we know why he was to choose 12, right? So back in chapter 3, it says choose 12. Now we know why. These 12 are designated to pick up 12 stones as they go through the middle. So Joshua instructs the 12, take up 12 stones. Verses 8 and 9 is the compliance. <clears throat> they took up 12 stones. So there's a pattern here, by the way, that's repeated. Actually, if you look over, that's repeated many times in the early part of Joshua. The Lord tells Joshua, commands Joshua, Joshua tells the people, and the people obey. And this was to seal and cement Joshua as leader among the people. And especially you get to verse 15 of chapter 4. Lord says, here's a great example. The Lord says to Joshua, command the priest carrying the ark of the covenant to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commands the priest, come up. And the priest came up. So that pattern of God's telling Joshua, Joshua telling the people, and then the people obeying. The instruction is very, very much a pattern here in the early part of Joshua. So verses 10 through 20 is the action of the crossing, the picking up of the stones, exiting the Jordan River, and camping out Gil at Gilgal. And all of that action that started in chapter 3 is now completed in chapter 4. And so they set up the 12 stones at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was very strategically located. Jordan River is on one side and an open plain on the other side, so it was an easily defensible place. And so it was their base of operations for a long time as they went into battle and started to have victory in the land of Canaan. And so it makes sense to set up the 12 stones here because they're going to be there for quite some time. We don't know what they did. We don't know if they just piled them up, made a pile of stones. We don't know if they built something out of them. Some of the uh, scholars say that maybe it was in a circle because the word Gilgal is close to the Hebrew word for circle. Uh, that's just pure speculation. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know how they set them up, but they set them up as a memorial of some kind. So it would be recognized as a memorial. And then you get to um, verses 21 to 24, and we have the summation. The 12 stones would be a voice to future generations. So speak up, 12 stones, uh, because they are going to be a voice for Israel and for future generations for years to come of a memorial. Back in the early part of chapter 4, Joshua informs the 12 to pick up 12 stones. Now, here at the end of the book, at the end of the chapter, he informs the entire nation. What's the purpose of these 12 stones? So that's real, that's the summary, that's the sort of the context, kind of the where we're at with this passage of Scripture. Now let's take a little closer look at the purpose of the stones. The purpose of the stones First of all, it's a memorial to succeeding generations. Verse 
5, the end of verse 5, verse 6 of chapter 4, each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes. By the way, they weren't pebbles, were they? Take up a stone on their shoulders. So they're pretty good-sized rocks, I think, that they had to pick out of the middle of the Jordan, not just little stones. To, so it would be, you know, you've got 12 of them now, so you have something substantial there, sizable stones. Take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israelites, 12, to serve as a sign among you. Aha, uh-huh. the stones were to serve as a sign. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean, tell them what happened. So, is it okay if I just take this off? I'm getting warm. Are you warm? No, you're not. Oh, yes, you are. Okay, not just me. <laughs> hey, I'm from the, fro- the snows in part of the country, so. My wife and I just were, came home from Papua New Guinea a, a few weeks ago. Uh, our son serves there as missionary, and we noticed that the, uh, the village supports somebody in Papua New Guinea. But it was 65 to 85 for three weeks, two and a half weeks. Oh, that was nice. <laughs> Sorry, that not, has nothing to do with what we're doing here. Just kind of got off track there a little bit. <clears throat> I'm a teacher more than a preacher, so once in a while there's bunny trails. Kind of have little excursions around one way or the other. All right, so... It was to serve as a sign, these stones, a visible reminder of what God had done on their behalf. And it was intended to provoke questions by the children as they're growing up and they see that pile of stones there. What what are these stones for? Now, they're set up in such a way that they're going to recognize they weren't just randomly thrown there. Why are they there? So it's intended to provoke questions from the next generation. So the story of God's work could be told and retold and retold for generations to come countless times. Now, to what end? Verse 24 of Joshua 4 really is the key summary point of all of this. To what end? He did this, verse 24 of Joshua 4. This is the summary of the whole thing. He did this, crossing the Jordan, so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So to what end? So that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. A message, this pile of stones, the crossing the Jordan, and then the pile of stones was a message and a constant reminder of God, who he is what he has done to not just the Israelites, but to all the peoples of the earth. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. There's an immediate effect. Now when the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. Wow. There's an immediate impact. God Stopped the water so Israel could cross the Jordan. They put up these pile of stones to commemorate the event. The kings all hear about it, and they're trembling in fear. Who in the world can stand against these people and against God and what he is and who he is? So, so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And secondly, so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Uh-huh. There's a purpose for the Israelites and a purpose for the world. Told and retold multiple times reminds 
the Israelites, reminds the teller, the person who's telling the story, of what God has done and to continue to follow God. And it results in the next generation learning what God has done and knowing the need to follow God. So it's a tool, it's a strategy, the pile of stones, a mechanism so they wouldn't forget God and would remember to pass on the faith to the next generation, leaving a legacy. God was giving them something very real, very physical, very concrete to help them remember who he is and what he had done. And that very concrete physical reminder was not just a reminder to the Israelites of what God had done and that could be told and retold as future generations would ask questions, but it was also a message to the rest of the world of God, that God exists and who he is and what he can done. So let's look at the importance of leaving a legacy. The consequences of failure to leave a Christ-centered legacy are severe. If you turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Verse 6. Judges 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So we have a group of people, we have a nation, we have that, and we have leaders who followed the Lord, and they were faithful to follow God all throughout their lifetime because they had seen what God had done for Israel. And so they were committed to following the Lord, and they did throughout their lifetime. Verse 8, Joshua dies, they bury him, and all those elders, you know, pass on. Verse 10, what happened? After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. So now Joshua dies, and that whole generation who had seen what God had done dies. Another generation grew up who, neither, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Oh, what happened? So you have this generation. They are faithful to follow God. They saw what God had done. The next generation does not. And the reason is because nobody told them. They, see what it says? It's very, very clear. <clears throat> Whole gener- uh, they <clears throat> another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They didn't know. They didn't know because nobody told them. Nobody told them. That's why they didn't know. So then they didn't follow the Lord because they didn't know. That pile of rocks, somebody forgot to pass on. Somebody didn't pass on the story, and it wasn't told and retold over and over again. We can end our lives. We can be faithful followers of the Lord all of our lives, but still kind of end our life looking foolish and ending poorly because we don't pass that on to the world around us and to succeeding generations. So... There we were in the middle of the river, floating down the river without our paddle, in our, li- in our raft, kind of waving to all the people on the shore. <laughs> Hi. Well, out on the other side, across the, the river, not the side we needed to be on, there were trees overhanging, and we kind of went over there that direction, and we were at least able to grab a branch 
and hold on and stop ourselves. That was hanging down from a tree out over the river. <clears throat> so there we are now, sitting in the middle of the river, holding on to a tree branch and stuck there. <clears throat> Good bit of water on this side because the tree was way out over, and we needed to be on that side. So the river's probably as wide as this, and uh, we're probably about right here. So that's the shore over there, and that's the shore we needed to get to over there. There we are, looking rather silly, right? L- looking rather foolish because we hadn't prepared well and we weren't planned and, and didn't do a good job along the way. We ended poorly and we looked foolish. We don't want to do that with our lives as these people did. Even though they faithfully followed the Lord, they didn't pass that along. So they ended poorly because they didn't pass that on to the next generation. So we need to consider the value of leaving a Christ-centered legacy. I know, we're still in the middle of the river. I'll get us out, okay? Just pay attention. It'll come, all right? (laughs) So what's the value of leaving a Christ-centered legacy? The opposite of what happened in Judges, and if you flip over to Psalm 78. Great verses here, verses 1 through 7 or 8 of Psalm 78. Talks about this passing along and, and remembering things. Verse 2, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter things hidden, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. Aha, we're going to pass it along. So we have our ancestors tell us, the current generation, who tells the next generation, who then passes it along to future generations. We've got at least four generations plus mentioned here in this passage of Scripture, passing the faith along from one generation to the next. Exactly opposite of what happened in the beginning of the book of Judges. What's the end result? Verse 7. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. Oh, that is so different. From judges. And what happened there? So different. There they forgot. They didn't pass it along. They, these people, the next generation grew up. They didn't know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Psalm 78 says, pass this along from one generation to another. The word of God, your faith, and what has God has done in your life and in your lives. There's a big contrast between what happened in Judges, and what Psalm 78 is telling us. Well, let's take a look at the value of rituals and memorials as legacy tools. These are means to help us remember so we don't forget. So stones was very common at this time in Israel's history, the use of stones as a memorial. And we're not going to look up all these passages because we don't have time, but I'll just tell you quickly what they're about. Genesis 28, 18 to 22. This is where Jacob has his dream of the ladder. And remember, he slept on a stone for his pillow that night. And then he has that dream of the ladder. Look it up sometime. And he sets the stone up as a memorial of that event and of a vow, as a, and a vow he made to God as a result of that event. Genesis 31. This is Laban and Jacob again. And you'll remember they got into a little kerfuffle, those two. And uh, Jacob flees Laban. Laban comes after him. They meet up. They come to an agreement. They make a pile of stones. They heap up a pile of stones as a witness between them of their agreement. Joshua 7. 
This was a reminder of the consequences of sin. This is where Achan sinned by stealing from, by keeping some of the sacred things, and uh, he was stoned to death, and his family was burned, but they buried him under a pile of rocks. Pile of rocks to remember the consequences of sin. Joshua 24, this is where people make a covenant to follow God, and Joshua sets up a stone as a witness of the covenant the people make with God to follow him all the days of their life. 1 Samuel seven twelve. Samuel sets up a stone to commemorate God's work in victory over the Philistines. So a stone was set up as a commemoration event. There's one that's not in your outline, but... Um, And let's look at this one real quick. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus, sorry. Yeah, chapter 12. This is the Passover and commemorating the Passover. So the festival of unleavened bread was set up to commemorate and remember the Passover, which the Jews were to uh, do every year. And verses 24 and 20 to 27. Exodus 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover. So there's another event that God set up in the festival of unleavened bread as an opportunity to pass on the faith to succeeding generations Here's this event. The children will ask, what's this all about? And then they can tell them about the Passover and the Passover lamb, another opportunity to pass on the faith. We have communion today, something that was set up for us to remember what God had done and to pass, the faith, pass on the faith. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three twenty six verse 26 says, in doing this, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What? We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Who are we proclaiming it to? And what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming it to ourselves, right, so that we might always fear the Lord our God, that we might follow him. It reminds us of what he did for us, the sacrifice God made for us on the cross. We're reminded of that, and it reminds us to follow the Lord and to stay true to him. It's also a message to the rest of the world of what God has done and what we believe so that the world and all the peoples of the earth might know God and who he is. So what legacy am I leaving behind? What legacy are you leaving behind? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? If you were to die right now, what would they say about you? How would you be remembered? Or how do you want to be remembered? How do I want to be remembered? As I think about this, and I was preparing this message, and I look back on my life, and I'm like, well, there's some things that I don't want to be remembered for. I hope people forget about, because <laughs> I don't want them to remember. So maybe I need to be more intentional about doing some things so that the memory will point to God. That's what we want to have happen, to point people to God. See, we are leaving a legacy, right? I'm leaving one, and so are you. We are going to leave a legacy. You cannot not leave a legacy. Does that make sense? I'm not sure. It's going to either be an accidental one, 
I mean, you aren't intentional about it. You're very, it's just an accidental one that you're leaving. Or it can be intentional. It can be intentional legacy. It can be harmful. It can be a helpful legacy. Does it make God look good? Does it point people to God? Does it make him famous? Do other people know about God because of the legacy I'm leaving? Or does it make God look bad? Oh, yeah, he claimed to be a Christian, but that's not good, right? Does it hurt his reputation? I, part of my job is fundraising, right, as, pre, as president of Oak Hill. So it's not my favorite job, but I, got, but I can do it, right? <laughs> Actually, we're starting a capital campaign. Oh, this is one of these bunny trails, and I don't have time. Oh. <clears throat> Anyhow, visiting with some, my wife and I were visiting this, uh, this farmer one time, and he had a grain bin business, and we were visiting with him, and we had visited with him before. Um, Brenda wasn't along with me that time, but he was showing us around his operation, and he would, had the, all these grain bins, and uh, he was building more, and there were more grain bins under construction to, uh, to, uh, to expand his business. I'm not faulting him or anything, because I don't really know what his life's like. And he does give, and he gives, but he's basically said he's tapped out, and he doesn't really have any resources to give because he's investing all his resources back into his business. And it, thinking, well, I'm not sure about that. Really, you're building more and more and more grain bins to expand your business. And I understand the need to do that, but you don't have anything to give because you're investing all of it in that. Made me think a little bit. I know another uh, couple who have, were reasonably good donors to Oak Hills who quit giving because part of it was because his job changed. Part of it was because they're they buy up apartments and apartment buildings and invest in those and then you know put and he's putting all his resources into that and i'm thinking hmm well maybe that's okay i don't know i don't know again but i'm thinking really that's where you're putting all your dollars and all your resources and you don't have any money left to give to the to the lord's work because of that hmm made me think should we be doing that interesting paul says in second timothy 4:7 I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Notice what it didn't say in that passage as Paul nears the end of his life. It doesn't say how much money he earned or what his net worth was or how many toys he had or what his educational credentials were, how far he had traveled, what kind of house he had or the cars that he had or the positions that he had held or the titles that he had or the awards he had acquired or earned, nothing. Nothing. It was, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. Yeah, may that be true of all of us in our lives so that we don't end poorly and look foolish at the end. So we're stuck in the middle of the river, right? <clears throat> Holding on to a tree. So somebody else there has a little canoe, and so he gets the paddle from the guy who jumped out, the oar, and he canoes it out to us and gives it to me. So now I have one oar and two ladies in the boat with me, and we try to navigate our way back to the shore over there. You know how hard it is to paddle a raft with one paddle? What happens if you paddle on one side? So we went back to the shore that way. We really look foolish, right? We really ended poorly, and we really look foolish. When we got to the end, actually, I tried to make, not look too bad and tried to do both sides, you know, this side and that side, so we could at least be semi. So we went back to the shore like this, you know, like wiggled our way back. We made it back, but we really did end poorly and really looked foolish. 
and that's not how we want to end. There are some legacy stones in my life. Village Bible Churches, I have a bunch of stories I could tell you. Village Bible Church is a legacy stone for me. You know, I came out here to go to Wheaton from Pennsylvania, went to Wheaton to get my master's degree. There was posted there. Youth pastor position part-time available at Village Bible Church. I checked into it. They hired me. They didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and we started working there. And after I finished my master's, then we went full-time at Village Bible Church out there in Sugar Grove. See, I was young, 22, 23 years old, somewhere in that range. Had very little experience. This is my first paid ministry position. So I'm young. I'm inexperienced. I'm not real wise. We made mistakes, and I made mistakes. But that church surrounded us and loved us and cared for us. They were like our home away from home. They were like our parents. Village Bible Church is a legacy stone in my life because I'm here today because of that experience. I had colleagues who went into churches and into ministry right after graduate school and had such bad, terrible experiences that they left the ministry. And I'm in the ministry today because of Village Bible Church and what it did because those people and some of them are still there, cared about us, they tolerated our mistakes, they helped us, they loved us. And so that's a stone in my life, you know, one where I can say this is what God did through the people of Village Bible Church in my life. You have some of those stories. What memorial stones have you created or could you create to remember, to encourage other believers, to encourage the next generation, to encourage the children to always fear the Lord your God and to follow him. Or so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. So that all the peoples of the earth. See, we create memorials all the time, right, in our world. We have them everywhere. So you go to Washington, you got the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial and the Veterans Memorial. We know those things and we remember them. You can drive around the country roads in the U.S. and you can see these little signs, historical marker. You know, and if you stop, there's some event that happened there, something historical happened there. Little things to remind us of certain things, remind us of sacrifices made. We have those memorials that we do in our country. We need those kinds of memorials in our lives and to help us leave a legacy. So two questions I can ask myself. What choices will I make today that will contribute to a Christ-centered legacy that makes God look good? So every day, I can get up and I can think about the day. As I think about the day, what choices can I make today that will contribute to a Christ-centered legacy that makes God look good, that makes God famous, that points people towards God? If God shows up in a mighty way, what can I do to memorialize that event so that I remember and it is remembered by succeeding generations? If God shows up in a powerful way, what can I do to memorialize that event? Yeah, you could journal, write them down. Someday somebody in the future may read your journal. Maybe pictures or photos. There are opportunities to talk. In our house, we have pictures of our kids, right? So people come into our house and they're like, oh, these are your kids. And they give us opportunity to talk about our kids and our family. Photos is another way to memorialize something. It gives you an opportunity to talk about it. It could be some kind of token on display so or something. So we have... Brenda's shot a moose when we were in Alaska, and their moose antlers are about that big, spiky moose. So we keep that, you know, that's in the living room on the little shelf down there, and we can tell the story about how she shot that moose with those little moose antlers laying down there, and actually how God opened the door for that to happen and how God provided 
in that circumstance or situation. I got sheep horns in the wall in my house, doll sheep horns that we shot in Alaska. And I can tell you the story about how God kept me from falling off the mountain on that story. Pretty amazing. <clears throat> something, tokens, something to help, a memorial to help us remember. So if you haven't done anything, what will you do today? What will you start today to build a Christ-centered legacy? You're by the way, you already, you got these stones, right, in this glass case somewhere, right back there, right? So you're building a legacy right there, you know, with praying for people and trying to share Christ with others. That's fantastic. One of the things that we try to do at Oak Hills, we say we don't really, it doesn't really matter what occupation you get when you get out of Oak Hills and how you make a living, but are you serving the Lord in that place? And in that, in that wherever God has you, are you serving the Lord? And we, get, we bring people into our campus that are in jobs, and they're not in ministry positions. They're in regular marketplace jobs, but they are using that as an opportunity to minister and to serve and to leave a legacy for God. So if you haven't done anything, what will you start today to build a Christ-centered legacy? And if you have, continue to do that. Build a Christ-centered legacy from your life so that... We will always know to fear the Lord our God so that we will follow God, one another, believers, and our children, and so that the world will know who God is and what he has done. Amen.